and you get right away. I mean, you don't have to dig very deep before <clears throat> you're grasping the message and excited about the message. And Micah is one of those books, though, that for me, anyway, um, takes a little more digging. And I have thoroughly enjoyed <clears throat> studying Micah. Excited to share it with you this morning. Micah chapter 1 and verse 1, we have uh, the introduction to, <clears throat> to the book. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, <clears throat> the Morristite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> so there's very little we know about Micah the prophet, other than what's given here in the introduction. And so <clears throat> let's look at this verse number one, figure out a few things about him. Number one, I, I refer to this lesson as Micah, prophet to the north and south, because as we've looked most of these prophets had a specific country they were preaching to. They were a prophet to the north or to the south. In the case of Jonah, <clears throat> he was actually sent from the north, um, had been a prophet there, but was sent to, um, to Nineveh to preach. And so here we have Micah. He has a unique ministry in that he is mentioned as equally a prophet to the north and to the south. And I want to point out here, notice <clears throat> that both, it doesn't refer to the northern kingdom, Israel, it doesn't call, it doesn't refer to the southern kingdom, but it refers to the capitals. And as we see in these prophets, over and over, they address what's happening in the capitals. And so um, I think that's really key to understanding God dealing with a nation and judgment coming on a nation. You want to see if any nation is ripe for God's judgment, look at what the prophet said about the capitals, Samaria and Judah, and look at the capital of the country or the state. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> and that can give you a lot of insight. But when he says Samaria in the book, he's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. When he says Jerusalem, he's talking about the southern kingdom. <clears throat> okay, it is. There we go. Okay, so let's look at his introduction here. First of all, it's, his name is given. His name means who is like God? Who is like God? So he asks a question. I mean, his name is a question, but... It really gives the answer. In other words, there's no one like our God. It says he was a Morsethite, which means he was from Moresh. Sorry, Morsheth. Morsheth is in the southern kingdom. It's just southwest of Jerusalem. And if it's the one that we think it is, um, it's referred to now as Moresheth Gath. Um, it's in the hill country, beautiful hill country between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, <clears throat> as I've already mentioned, he's a prophet to the north and to the south. 
The northern kingdom is getting ready for the judgment of God when the Assyrians are going to come down and take the country, and he's preparing them for that. Micah 3 verse 8, I think, is a good key verse to the whole book. Micah 3 8 says, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. He's giving a contrast between the other prophets who were preaching during his day. There's only a very small handful of prophets who were actually preaching the word of the Lord. One is Isaiah. We're going to talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> but in contrast to those prophets who were preaching just for profit and are not preaching the word of the Lord, he says in verse 8, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob, that's the southern kingdom, his transgression, and to Israel, the northern kingdom, his sin. So he points out here, what is his purpose? God has filled him, the Holy Spirit is, has filled him for this purpose, and it's to point out the sin of the north and the south. Micah was a contemporary, as I've already mentioned, of Isaiah. Isaiah was an older prophet, but um, Micah would have been the younger. Some compared the book of Micah to the book of Isaiah, saying it's the compact version of Isaiah, because they talk about so many of the same things. He was preaching when Hezekiah came to the throne. Hezekiah is the third king mentioned as being king of Judah when Micah was preaching. Micah's preaching caused the young Hezekiah to repent and lead the nation in a season of revival. You read about the old-time kings, and you see, oh, this one did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, this one was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it goes back and forth. And when you read that, have you ever wondered what it was that would provoke a king to get right with God? I mean, sometimes it says, Josiah, um, they found, they were cleaning out the temple and they found the scroll and they brought it in and they read the law to him. His heart's smitten by the word of God. He's convicted of the sins of the nation. He repents, leads the nation in repentance. Hezekiah, though, when we read about it in 2 Kings 18, it doesn't give us as much detail. But if you look over to Jeremiah chapter 26, we're told what it was that provoked Hezekiah to turn to the Lord. Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18, to wit, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and the kings thereof and the princes, uh, I'm in the wrong one. What do I have written here? 20, Jeremiah 26, Oh, I was reading 25. Thank you. Um, let's go to 26, actually, verse 18. Micah the Morishite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest." Did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah, put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? And the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them. 
And so here he points out, here, here these men are pointing out that Micah preached, and when Micah preached, Hezekiah responded. So Hezekiah responds to the preaching of Micah, and it's actually Micah chapter 3 and verse 12. Um, so we know there which it, um, Hezekiah could have heard all the sermons of Micah, but we know he heard the second sermon of Micah that's recorded here in the book of Micah, because that is referred to by these men in the day of Jeremiah. So there was this young preacher, or younger than Isaiah, rather. We don't know exactly how old he was by this point, but younger than Isaiah. And he's preaching to the young king, and the king repents. Micah, somewhere here between, was preaching somewhere between 700 and, well, actually, you'd say it the other way, 735 to 700 B.C., preaching to the north and the south. A quick outline of the book. Um, one, one is the preface. It gives us the information about the author and the audience. Sermon one is laid out in Micah chapter one and chapter two, gives us this um, first, as far as we see it, a, a first sermon, you could say. And he begins it, hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And then we have Sermon 2, beginning in Micah chapter 3. And as we saw in Jeremiah, this was a sermon that Hezekiah heard. And um, the second here begins, and I said, here I pray ye, O heads of Jacob. Notice he's preaching to the rulers of the southern kingdom. O heads of Jacob and ye princes of the house of Israel. So he's also preaching to the northern kingdom here. It is not, uh, sorry, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. You get the idea of how corrupt the leadership of Judah and the leadership of Israel were. He's describing here um, men who would come in and they would start to butcher the sheep to eat them. And they're going to peel the skin off, and they're going to chop them up, and they're going to throw them in the pot. He says, you're consuming God's people. And they were. They were taking advantage of them in these sermons. He talks about all kinds of things from the point of running women and children out of their houses, figuring out how they could go around the law and be able to um, possess somebody else's house. It was much like what Ahab and Jezebel did when they had Naboth's vineyard and Ahab wanted it, so Jezebel figured out how to get rid of um, Nay. I just said his name, Naboth. He figures out how to get rid of him. She figures out how to get rid of him, and then her husband can have the land he wants. This was commonplace, according to Micah, during his day, especially in the northern kingdom, was happening all the time. And so he's addressing things like this. He said, you're just taking advantage of them here in this sermon. He, ad he addresses the prophets. He addresses the priests. 
for their corruption, for the fact they were willing to do anything for money. Sermon 3 begins in um, chapter 6. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. So that gives just a basic outline of the book. But now we're going to look at what, to me, were some key passages, things that really jumped out to me as I was going through um, Micah. You could also call it a survey of Micah, um, an over, overview of Micah. But let's look at a few passages. Micah chapter 1 <coughs> and verse 6. In his first sermon here, Micah 1 and verse 6, <clears throat> he talks about the complete destruction of the northern kingdom. Look at verse 6. He said, Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field. I've listened to preachers who have been to Samaria. One um, listened to a sermon of this week, uh, J. Vernon McGee. He talked about visiting Samaria and what it was like there. Keep going. He said, and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. So he was going to expose the foundations and the stones that were used to build the walls. They're going to be thrown down the hill. And J. Vernon McGee, during his time, this would have been like in the 40s, I believe. It was shortly after World War II that he preached the message I was listening to this week. And um, he said he had been up on top of Samaria, on top of the hill there, standing where the palace had been, looking down the hill. And he said, all you see is big rocks sticking out of the shrubbery and stuff going down the hill. God literally fulfilled his word. And God brought the Assyrians in and they destroyed Samaria. Nothing but a few relics you can find around there if you start digging. In Micah 1 and verse 9, he tells us about Judah, the condition of Judah. He says in verse 9, for her wound is incurable. This is the death sentence. This is the doctor comes in and says, your disease is inoperable. There's nothing we can do about it. You're going to die. Prepare to die. This is what the prophet Micah is telling the nation of Judah. He is not giving them sweet little messages. He's having to tell them, prepare for judgment because God's going to judge us. There's nothing we can do to stop this. Now, we see that Hezekiah did repent. We read that in Jeremiah. He heard the message, this, the second message that starts at chapter 3. Hezekiah heard that message. He repented. He turned to the Lord. And God not, did not bring immediate destruction. In fact, the Assyrians tried to, after wiping out the northern kingdom, they came down, destroyed several cities of the southern kingdom, but they stopped short at Jerusalem because God intervened. Why did God intervene? Well, he had the Babylonians going to take them away, and Micah tells them that, but God was going to intervene for his people we, they had a king who repented, that turned to the Lord, led the nation in the right direction, but it was still incurable. There was nothing they could do to stop 
what was coming, the judgment that was coming. All that happened when they repented was God delayed what was going to happen. But as I said, their sin was terminal. It was time for a funeral. Micah chapter 2. Here in these verses, we'll start at verse 12. We see God will gather his people again. And it's interesting, Micah had such a dark message. The painting, I I found this collection of paintings um, that's in a Jewish museum in New York. I'm going to flip back here. Um, That I had on the cover page. And the painting, well, you can see the tall painting there. A close-up of the painting is here. Um, It's a dark painting that this artist did of, he, he has a collection of paintings he did of the Minor Prophet. It's a dark painting, and I almost didn't use it, but I'm like, Micah had a dark message. I figured he looked about like that when God told him what he had to go preach to Hezekiah. You know, oh boy, I could have my head chopped off. God, this is dark stuff. This is, this is terrible stuff, but yet in the messages of Micah, he constantly, thank you, he constantly had good things to tell them. Okay, it's terrible. You've sinned. This is how wicked your sin is. Specifically, this is what your sin is. And then he'd get through telling them about their sin, telling them that God's going to judge it. And then he'd say, but God's going to restore the nation. Look here at verse number 12. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Notice there's a number of times that Micah uses the word remnant. You could kind of, you could title the book that, the messages to the remnant. He keeps telling them there's going to be a remnant when we read that all of Israel shall be saved. Does that mean every single Jew living at that time in history is going to get saved? Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think Micah is one that lays it out very clearly that it is a remnant. It always has been a remnant of the Jews that believed. And um, it, it will continue to be that, but there will be a group that God's going to bring. He said, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozrah, as the flock in the midst of their fold. If I understand this correctly, that was a very green, fertile place where they used to um, graze their sheep. He said, I'm going to bring them back to this green place. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate, and are gone out by it, and their king shall pass before them. Who is the king? That's the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ. He's talking about a future time. Some say this happened at the end of the Babylonian captivity. I don't think that's the case, because there was no Messiah. Jesus wasn't there. This is talking about a future time still yet to come, This is not talking about the resettlement that we have seen in recent years even. Um, J. Vernon McGee, again, um, preaching right after World War II, made made a comment about that. He said, there's all these preachers so excited about this prophecy being fulfilled, Jerusalem's being resettled. He said, brothers, this is not the prophecy that we're seeing today. He said, if this is a reason for excitement, it's going to be a real reason for excitement when Jesus shows up and he gathers the people. So right now, that's just the early shakings, I think, of this prophecy being fulfilled. But their king shall pass before them, and the Lord 
on the head of them. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he will come back. He will gather his people. He will lead them like a shepherd, but it's going to be a shepherd that's ready to go to war, as Micah will point out later. Micah chapter 3, he deals with <clears throat> the leadership, as I've already said. We read the first few verses here already. He talks about they're like, the, they're like men who are peeling off the skin of the sheep, who are breaking their bones, who are chopping them up, putting them in the pot to cook them. He said, that's what y'all are doing. Um, if you look down in verse number five, we see the condition of the prophets. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, they bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their, sorry, and he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Therefore, night shall be unto you that ye shall not see a vision, and it shall be darkened to you, that ye shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Um, so they had, God was not going to be answering them. He was not going to give them any messages anymore. There was going to be darkness to these prophets because, because of what he says in these next verses. Look down at verse um, 9. He says, hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob. So now he's dealing with the king and the judges and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward. He said, y'all are not bringing justice. Their court system was not a court system of justice. It's whoever paid the most money. That's how they judged. And the priests thereof teach for hire. They're not teaching the word of the Lord. They're teaching what will get them paid the most money. And the prophets thereof divine for money. Somebody comes and says, hey, prophet, I need some direction. I need to hear from God. Um, what are we going to do? And the prophet says, oh, well, you know, he's going to give them a message that's going to bring back the best benefit. Whatever he's going to get paid for, that's what he's going to prophesy over them. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? So they're doing all of this, and yet they're going to lean on the Lord and say, oh, God's among us. None evil can come upon us. They really believed that they could get away with their sin because they were God's people. I mean, they're the Jews. I mean, they weren't called Jews yet, but, you know, we're the Hebrews. We are the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is among us. He would not judge us. In other words, we can get away with our sin. And sometimes we're that way. We feel like because we're redeemed, we feel like because we're saved, we feel like because we have grace, we can get away with things. But God deals with his people. Judgment must begin at the house of the Lord, the scripture says. And it was this message, these words right here, because then he goes on, therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field. Why was Zion going to be brought down low? It wasn't just because of what the poor people were doing out in the villages. He said, you want to know why this is happening? He says, Hezekiah, this is your fault. He, judges, this is your fault. Priests, this is your fault. And so he points, prophets, this is 
your fault. And this is why I say we need to keep, um, I, I keep realizing with these prophets, look to the Capitol, what's going on in Washington, D.C., what's going on in Austin. Um, do we really deserve the mercy of God? Or are we as arrogant as the Jews of this time period were that said, we've carried the gospel around the world. God would not judge us. God's name is on our money. God is among us. God would not judge us. But yet there are people that really feel that way, people that really believe that. And um, it just disturbs me the more I read the prophets, the more I realize we're in a lot of trouble. One of the boys this week told me he had been reading the book of Daniel and he had some questions about it. And anyway, finally he's like, well, dad, where is America in Bible prophecy? He said, we're not. It was just really puzzled. I said, people believe America couldn't be wiped out. I said, but I said, there's one hint that I think in the book of Revelation could be America. This eagle comes and helps um, rescue a bunch of Jews out of Jerusalem and takes them out into the wilderness, probably around um, Petra or somewhere, and gets them to safety. Like, America might be the eagle, but that's all we do is search and rescue. Like, that's it if we're there. Um, so God could deal with us before then, and um, maybe we are no longer in existence. Maybe we are just a small um, localized government, and we're not a world power anymore. Um, we're at the end of World War II, J. Vernon McGee was preaching the book of Micah and said, I'm afraid America's already crossed a line. We're in a decline, and I think we've gone too far, and we already deserve the judgment of God. He said, I love my country, but America's in trouble. We are going to face the judgment of God just like Israel and Judah did. That was in the 40s. And I thought, wow, what if J. Vernon McGee was alive today? He would probably get on an airplane and go somewhere else. He would just want to escape the frying that he would expect to come from Sodom and Gomorrah. But when we look at the corruption of these leaders, and this was a case that when Hezekiah heard this message, it caused his heart to tremble and he repented. And it should cause the same for us, for us to repent of our sin because we are not saved from the judgment of God. But again, in this message, he gives some hope. He begins in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, talking about the millennial kingdom. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord, shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. What an exciting message. And many nations shall come. Now, this, seem, this would have to seem like a funny message. The preacher just told you, you're all going to be destroyed. And then he says, oh, but in the last days, oh, we're going to be built real big. And in all the earth, nations are going to come to us. Come and let us go into the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There is a day in which the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And one day Jesus Christ is going to come down. He's going to go into that temple 
and he is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. I believe that literally. I can sit down and have discussions on whether Jesus is going to come back at the beginning of the tribulation or the end of the tribulation, and we can have disagreement on that, and either one of us could be right or wrong. But when you come to the thousand-year reign of Christ, I do not see how we could have any discussion about it. The Bible is so clear that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on this earth. He is going to rule. And Micah is telling them of this great time. And he shall judge among the people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This will be the time when the military equipment will need to be destroyed because it's not going to be needed. This is a time of peace. He said, um, a nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So a picture of Jerusalem today, it has not been rebuilt for this purpose yet. There will be some shaking and some moving and some changing on that temple mount. But one day God is going to do this. And verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. He says this is going to be a time of peace. This is going to be a time of prosperity. It's going to be a wonderful time to be on earth because Jesus will be king. Jesus will be ruler. And Jerusalem is going to be the capital of his kingdom. If we go on to chapter 4, sorry, we are in chapter 4. But look down at verse 9. He tells, um, he names Babylon as the nation that will destroy the southern kingdom. So he tells them, he's basically telling them, don't be afraid of the Assyrians, but... You need to be afraid because, yeah, the Syrians, you're not going to get wiped out by them. Um, verse 90 begins talking about these pangs start having pain as a woman in travail. What's he talking about? Oh, when labor hits a woman, the pain hits. He said, oh, that's what's happening here. Verse number 10, be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city and thou shalt dwell in the field and thou shalt go even to Babylon. He said, you're being taken away to Babylon. But he doesn't stop there. Look at the hope that he gives them. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. And we saw that during the days of Jeremiah. And during the days of Ezra, God began to deliver them from Babylon. And of course, not all of the Jews came back. They were scattered around the world. Um, and one day they will be fully gathered. Um, one, one thing that J. Vernon McGee gave as being a reason where, why in the late 40s and early 50s, um, he believed that the Jews going back to Israel wasn't a fulfillment of these prophecies in Micah. He said, because today there are still more Jews living in New York City than live in all of the Holy Land. He said, so this hasn't happened yet. Um, but one day, they're going home. And 
while their destruction was prophesied, there was hope. Chapter 5, he gives even more hope. Now he begins to tell us where the Messiah is going to come from. He identifies Bethlehem as the birthplace. Verse 2, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. If you ever doubt the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, here's a good verse to go to to deal with your doubt. He describes who Jesus Christ is. He says, whose goings forth have been from of old. He has existed. He has operated from of old. From old times, he's already been. Now, he's telling them about where he's going to be born. He said, oh, yeah, but he's already been existing. He's already been working in the past. From from how long? He says, from everlasting. He's always been. So if you ever doubt the deity of Christ, look right, no further than right here. If you look at the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, you find that what is true of one is true of the others. We look at God the Father is eternal. He's eternal God, forever the same. But if we look at Jesus Christ, he is eternal. He is always the same. He is the eternal God. And Micah was able to give a hint of this in this passage. In chapter 6, we see the Lord's controversy with the northern kingdom. And he begins to deal with them. We already read part of this. Verse 2, the Lord has a controversy with his people, with Israel. In verse 3, ask a question. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? What did I do to you to make you rebel against me? And wherein have I wearied thee? What have I done to wear you out? Testify against me. Come on, speak up. Give us some witnesses against me. Tell me what I have done wrong against you. For I brought thee out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of Moses. Sorry, out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Then he mentions the whole issue with Balak and Balaam. And verse 6, he says, wherewith shall I come before the Lord? So he asks, how am I going to, Micah says, how am I going to approach the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Is this what God wants? He's asking the nation, what are we going to do to repent? What are we going to do to change what God has said? I mean, Jonah had preached to Nineveh, as we saw last time we studied uh, one of the prophets together. God said he was going to destroy them. They repented and God didn't destroy them. He said, so what are we going to do? Do we bring offerings, calves of a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? What if we gather up thousands of rams and offer them? Or with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Should I offer my child as a sacrifice? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? <clears throat> In the northern kingdom, they had been doing this. They had been offering up their kids as sacrifices. They had been shedding innocent blood. He said, is that what God wants me to do? 
Verse eight, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good. He's speaking to the Northern kingdom. He said, God has already showed you what he wants. And what doth the Lord require of thee? You see, he's pointing out that offering sacrifices can be a ritual. You can go up to the temple, you can offer all of this stuff I've talked about and go home just as wicked as you were before. He said, what God wants is not the sacrifices. What God wants is a change of your heart and your life. He says, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to, and he gives three points, do justly. They were not operating with true biblical justice in their nation. He said, God wants you to do justly. He wants you to operate according to his word. That's justice. And to love mercy. They were, had become so unmerciful to anyone they considered lower in class than them. He said, God wants you to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. God wants you to become humble and quit being so arrogant. This is what God wants. God wants a change of life. Now, I've heard this verse my whole life. Challenge to memorize it. But I don't know when I've ever heard it really in the context. And the context was a northern kingdom's going to be destroyed. They're going to be wiped out. And they said, what can we do to avoid the judgment of God? He said, quit. Don't. It's not sacrifices. It's not the rams. It's not the shedding of blood that is going to bring about help at this time. It's going to be when we start getting our hearts right with God. The lamb has shed his blood. Jesus Christ has died. If we look at it and apply it to us, Jesus Christ has already died. What does God expect from us? He expects us to walk justly. He expects us to love mercy. He expects us to walk humbly with our God. I think it's interesting. He gave them three points. Real simple, but difficult to live out on most days. Micah chapter 7, as we come to the conclusion of this, Micah chapter 7. Let's look at the end, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> he lays out, I'd put it into three points here again. First of all, we see the restoration. He's going to restore his people. Verse 14, he says, Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. He said, just like it was when you came out of Egypt and I did all these great signs and wonders, he said, I'm going to work like this again in the future. And we still have yet to see this prophecy be fulfilled. The nation shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. You ever had something happen? You were so shocked, you just, you covered your mouth. He said, that's what's going to happen when God starts working on the behalf of his Jewish people scattered around the world. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? Here we have forgiveness. God will forgive his people. 
who pardoneth iniquity, passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So he's given them a terrible message. Judgment is coming to the north and to the south. Assyrians are going to take the north, and they did during the time period of Micah. They came and overtook them. They tried to invade the south, and God stopped them at Jerusalem. But he says the south will be taken by Babylon. But God's going to regather us one day. He's going to restore us. He's going to forgive us. And he's going to remember the promises that he made. Verse 20, thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham. God made some promises to Abraham. And God is still going to keep those promises. Which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So he ends with a message of hope. God will restore. God will forgive. And God will remember. God has still today not forgotten his, his promises that he made to the patriarchs. He made those promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And he's going to keep his promises. Brings so much hope and so much encouragement to me when I remember God keeps his promises. So what does he expect of me? To walk, let's see, how did he say it? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with my God. Why would I do that? Because he's, he does these three for me. He restores me when I sin. He forgives me when I sin. And he remembers the promise that he made to me that he would never leave me and never forsake me. What great truth I have as a Christian. And I find this in an Old Testament book of Micah. We hear the Old Testament, oh, that's the harshness of God, the judgment of God. What stupidity. Somebody who's making up that stuff hasn't read the book. And I know they call themselves theologians and they publish books about the Bible, but it's hogwash. You look at the Old Testament and you find the love of God. God says, oh, I'm judging. Oh, yes, it's harsh. Oh, but I, I heard somebody say this week, the, the, the doctrine of hell was never developed in the Old Testament. That was New Testament. It's hinted to in the Old Testament. You want to find the harshness of God, read the New Testament, find out about hell. But you read the Old Testament, we have the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even to his people, he said, yes, there is judgment, but I will forgive you. I will restore you. I will remember. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these truths. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to dig deeper into your word. I thank you for the messages of Micah. And um, Lord, I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to walk with you as we should. Lord, that we would love justice, love mercy, that we'd walk humbly with our God. Lord, I pray that you would um, just help us to trust you more. And as we see the darkness of the world around us, like Micah did in his day, Lord, we would still look to hope. We have hope because you're coming back. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection, for the hope of the second coming, hope of eternity with you in heaven. Lord, I pray that you'd bless in the remainder of the services today. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.